Testing, testing. One, two, three. Are we on? Welcome to our town. Well, hello and welcome to the Our Town podcast. My name is Nick Byfield and welcome indeed to this inaugural episode. Uh, I couldn't have started off this project without speaking to David Clark. Dare I say he's the custodian, the patriarch, the grand master of Our Town. He's the director of the Lakes District Museum and has been since 1989, but he has many, many other illustrious titles to his name in areas that he's contributed uh, to the town and the district since his permanent arrival here in, in the mid 80s. We do get to cover some of that ground, um, certainly not all of his contributions, uh, but please do sit back uh, and listen to, to the conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Thank you, and thank you for such a glowing introduction. <clears throat> no problem at all. Um, we're going to start off, as I hope to every time, by asking people to give us their recollections of Aratown the first time they encountered Aratown. What was that first memory, that first experience? Um, like a lot of Invercargill people, we came up here on holidays. Didn't have our own holiday house, but always um, managed to rent one. Usually in the summer, sometimes in the winter. So probably my first recollections would be when I was about 10 coming up and staying one hot scorching summer and just the joy of, of this place. And where was that holiday home? Up in Stafford Street, so it was right on the edge of town looking out across the wheat fields which are now all the Adamson subdivision and uh, looking down below where Michael Hill's golf course was. So we were almost on the outskirts. I remember thinking it was such a long walk to walk to the right. swimming pool. And what is it you enjoy about our town today? Pretty much those same things that mm. I enjoyed then. The um, just the beauty of the place, the changing colours, the, the river, the freedom, the ability to let your kids, once we had kids, uh, to just go and discover and you knew they were going to come home when they were hungry, just like we were, up the pipeline, up the river, swimming in the river, looking for gold. Um, the sense of history everywhere, um, I think that's when I got my first sense of history. I mean, wherever you've had gold mining history, it's always quite exciting, even as a kid. Yeah, so many things have stayed the same, but many, many things have changed as well. What do you, What are some of those changes that you've experienced? I guess just the growth of the place. Um, although, you know, the hard central core has still got that same sort of uh, feel because it's dictated by those beautiful avenues of trees, uh, the cottages, even the new form of the main street, whilst it's been significant, still has ref reflected, um, you know, what was there. You still got the same view shafts up to the to the mountains and hills that you always had, but the changes obviously are when you go out into what we call the new town and the suburban development. And so even when I came here in 1987 to live, um, the population was only about 800. Now it's about 26. So even in that short period of time, 30 plus years, it's trebled in size. When I came here as a holiday maker, you'd be lucky if there was 100. And 50 people living here. So what happened in those intervening years from being a 10 year old to 1987 what drew you to make this home from Southland? Well um, good question. Um, I had gone from Invercargill to Dunedin after high school. I took a gap year and worked at the freezing works like every Southland <laughs> boy did. Went up to Dunedin, did a, a degree in history. I'd been turned on to history by an excellent history teacher at Southland Boys. So I did a bachelor's degree in history and education, 
then um, took off to Australia and worked in seismic ships off the coast of Darwin looking for oil. Um, worked in all sorts of high paying jobs in Australia and um, ended spending most of it in the bar. Came back to New Zealand then had another crack at going overseas and then travelled for three years with uh, my then girlfriend, now my wife Wendy. And um, when we came back we thought well where are we going to live after having such excitement for three years? We can't go back to Invercargill. Um, we'll go up to Queenstown for the weekend. So we came up for the weekend and immediately a mate offered us his uh, flat because he was going to Thailand for a holiday and another mate offered me a job landscaping because I'd done a bit of landscaping work as well. So within that weekend we'd moved to Queenstown, had a job and um, did that for the next few years until um, I got a bit tired of doing the landscaping and a job was advertised for a museum director had to have some qualifications in history but they also wanted someone who was practical and handy and I got the job at half the pay that I was getting as in the landscaping job but I just thought this was the job for me and um, my family all agreed not because of my prowess in history but they all said that I was um, always nosy and it would be the perfect job for me and I, I guess that to some degree is nosiness is part of the job or more to the point if you want to be a good archivist and historian then it's a bit like being a detective. Right so you didn't come to the role as director of the Lakes District <coughs> Museum with a great deal of experience in, in heritage preservation no, and all these things you now acquire these skills? None, I just acquired the skills and um, you know I was floundering, <laughs> I was only in my early early 30s and um, you know it was quite a, a daunting role. A lot of the Everyone had a paid position, but the, it was just a, a small museum, really, and um, I was just full of energy. And for about the first ten years, people would say, "Stop running," because I was just running everywhere. <laughs> right. You know, I would run from meeting to meeting and um, have all these ideas faster than I could implement them. And then gradually, you know, some of these ideas started to come to fruition, and we just kept growing and. You know, got new staff and got funding and got a, a full-time educator uh, position paid for by the Ministry of Education, built an archives room, bought the post office, redeveloped, redeveloped, and um, to the place where it is now. So what was happening at the museum prior to your arrival? It's got quite a history itself, although it was probably about the same age then yes. As, as, yes. as you've spent here now, you know. That's right, Nick. You started in... The museum started in 1948. Um, Post-war, people were throwing a lot of the Victorian items that they had out after the war. There was new fangled stuff like Formica and stainless steel and they were ripping old benches out and stripping old cottages out and throwing stuff out. So um, the MP of the day, Bodkin, Mr William Bodkin of Alexandra said, look, somewhere in the Wakatipu you need a museum and Aerotown put its hand up because they had a free room that was part of the Ballarat Hotel. It was just a little billiard room at the far end of the street. Where the bakery is now. Just near where the bakery yeah. is. Uh, yes, where the bakery cafe is pretty much. And that was set up as the first museum. And then about 1955, the Bank of New Zealand were uh, pulling out of town. They hadn't operated for a while and the museum bank building was falling into disrepair. So they offered it to the museum, I think for a hundred pounds. The museum said, no, we can't afford it. 
So in the end, the Bank of New Zealand said you could have it, and it came with this large section uh, of land. And so um, the museum board of the day thought, well, we'll take it on. We can sell that land next door. Uh, we'll never need any more than this bank building. So that became the museum, crammed full of stuff. But they did use that lawn, and we continue to you know, expand. And it was just so fortuitous that that piece of land on an anchor corner site with good visibility became the museum. And not long after you started the museum, you had quite an illustrious visitor. Yeah. Um, tell yeah. us about that visit. Um, yes, I'd only been at the museum for about two months and um, someone at reception said, there's a person that wants to speak to you in a very formal English uh, gentleman in a suit said, uh, can I meet you in private, please? <laughs> um, we're going to have a visit. Uh, I want you to keep this confidential, but um, the Queen and Prince Philip are going to visit and uh, they're coming to Arrowtown and we want you to host them at the museum. I thought, blimey, this is um, going to be an interesting proposition. But anyway, um, it was just an, the most amazing experience and it was the start of just meeting endless dignitaries and politicians and interesting people. Um, you know, I'll write my memoirs one day of just some of the interesting experiences of people, including during the Chogham conference when Nelson Mandela was here and we all went up to the to the um, war memorial and we were told that we wouldn't get anywhere near them. And in the end, Nelson Mandela just invited all the people that had, at least were trying to get a glimpse of him to come and join him and the other prime ministers from around the Commonwealth at the service. And so we all went over there as quick as we could. and. Nelson Mandela even touched my baby daughter Isabel on the head oh, right. and said to my wife, tell the children I love them. And, uh, so that was, we keep telling Isabel that. And <laughs> she's in her 20s and she goes, yeah, oh, okay, whatever. But she's starting to realise the significance. They're quite special, now. yeah. Yeah, so just had these amazing visitors, starting with the Queen, and she signed our visitors' book and, um, you know, had a, a nice conversation with her and Prince Philip. There was a few funny moments that you know, happened in that visit. But um, it was a special day for the whole town and you can see from the photographs the place was just packed. And I think you've mentioned you've met most of New Zealand's Prime Ministers in your time. Who have you missed out on? Uh, gosh, I don't think I've met, missed out on any of them. Oh, OK. I don't think I've missed out on any of them. haven't met uh, the current one. And certainly met uh, probably four or five of the Australian Prime Ministers in the last 30 years and foreign ministers. It's amazing who sort of wants to come, quite often to do with um, memorial services at the Cenotaph, but more often they're at retreats at Millbrook and just want a bit of a history lesson. People like Jacques Roger, who was the head of the Olympic Committee, just him and his wife wanted a, a walking tour. I do a lot of sort of, I'm called on a lot to do walking tours, not just for bus groups, but you know, visiting dignitary. Certainly lots of the Chinese uh, ruling ruling elite over the years, including the ambassadors to New Zealand from China, taking them gold panning and giving them history lessons and stuff. It's been, yeah, been fascinating. So your reign at the museum and the, the Queen's reign sort of came full circle because <laughs> last year you were awarded the Queen's Service Medal for Heritage. Yeah, Heritage Protection, which was a, a great honour. And yes, you're right, you know, I was one of the last recipients, so got the um, QSM, now it'll be the KSM. And even when we went to the reception in Wellington, her portrait had the black sash draped across it, so all the photos have got this. Right. So yes, quite an experience, and 
a great honour. Um, she must have put a word in for you just at the end there. Yes, I don't know. Um, one of my nieces worked uh, for Prince Charles and lived at Kensington Palace. Maybe she um, dropped a hint or something, I don't know. But what, what I want to ask is having sort of come to this role 33 years ago with no real professional interest or previous experience in heritage, yeah. and then 33 years on, you've got such an integral understanding of heritage, heritage preservation. How have you grown um, and how have you built your interest, understanding and yeah. personal connection to, to Aratown through its heritage? Yeah, I think, um, you know, saying I didn't have an interest, I think just from what I said about bringing in um, enamoured with Aratown from the first time I saw it, it must have been because of how it looked. So I thought being part of the museum, and this wasn't just me, this had been the council in the 1970s, uh, Jack Reed's council probably, who recognised once tourists started coming here, what was it that they liked about it? And it was still the same things that people like about it now. So that wasn't just heritage, it was the, the landscape, the amenity, the walking down by the river and all the things I mentioned before. So I thought, well, part of my role is to protect to get people to come to the museum, it's not going to be any good if it's a museum stuck in a high street full of glass boxes and you know rampant development. It's going to be a museum still stuck in the atmosphere and amenity that exists when I started. So I worked hard to carry on that role that Jack Reed's council um, saw. 1989, as it transpired, was when there was a fierce debate because Arrowtown Council was absorbed by the wider Queenstown Lakes District Council and there was a lot of fear that rules that Jack Reed's council had put in in terms of heritage protection were going to be lost. So that got me interested in, you know, um, starting to sit on other committees other than the museum to try and make sure that that heritage was protected. Well, there seems to be a great deal that you've done to protect that heritage that you can sort of point to with the, the miners' cottages required restoration to the tune of $700,000, um, moving of the original police hut, the oldest wooden building, down towards Dudley's precincts, not to mention $3.5 million worth of earthquake strengthening here at the museum. Yeah. How different do you think Aratown would be today if you hadn't? taken on some of those projects and that custodianship? Yeah, probably quite different. I don't think it was ever in my job description that I started going around saving other buildings around town. I just convinced the boards of the day that this is what we should do as part of a museum, not just social history, but also the built history. So that first project was the moving of the police camp building down to Butler's Green. It was up in Adamson Drive being used to store hay. It was in pretty bad condition, but I'd read previous information that it was part of the original police camp, so hence Aerotown's oldest building, and I thought, well, this is worth saving, and I'd heard the fire brigade were going to use it as a burning down <laughs> exercise. So I got the local Lions Club interested, we did the project, shifted it down there, and you know, it's one of the most photographed buildings in town now. And that then led me on to two campaigns to save the um, Aerotown Post Office and the Aerotown Postmaster's House, and we managed to achieve that through um, community buy-in and um, support and that's just become a great little couple of buildings with the gardens around it and much photographed and you know I was always of the view that they had to have some sort of economic use and then we've moved on as you say to the miners cottages the jail 
but also those groups that look um, after heritage protection in terms of the planning advisory group and then you know the um, lighting project that I've been involved in to light night light some of the heritage buildings all sorts of other little groups that I've been involved in that aren't necessarily part of my job description but I've made them part of my job yeah it's interesting that you know looking back in hindsight that it would be crazy to let any of these buildings and any of this heritage sort of fall by the wayside but um that's the case you know. yeah well look at the miners cottages they were so close to being demolition by neglect long grass all around them and then i look at them now with the vibrancy with provisions people walking through to the you know the Graham Brinsley's gallery behind the bike hire happening, Romans Lane happening. When I first came here, um, Ramshaw Lane was just a swath of asphalt from one side to the other. There wasn't even a footpath, so no one went down Ramshaw Lane. It was just the back end, and I'm thinking, well, that's the the face that faces the river. Mm. Why wouldn't we be facing the river, facing the north? So in, in my, you know, I, I became a councillor partly to instigate some of the um, recommendations of these planning workshops. I think that was a, a big catalyst, the 1994 planning workshop. It was very visionary, once again, for what other people were doing in, in New Zealand and a lot of other small heritage towns have, have taken our lead, uh, whereby you know it was a community-driven project. And one of the things that came out of that was the, um, the landscaping of Remshaw Lane and the upgrade of, of um, Buckingham Street to make it a much more pedestrian friendly, although, you know, for now, you know, you and I are now going through the debate about how we make it more pedestrian because it's just teeming with cars. Yeah. Yeah, so that question's often raised is should Buckingham Street be pedestrianised and what's your position on that? <coughs> oh, you know, I get constantly asked about that. I, I'm sort of in two minds. I think in the summer it is pretty jolly chaotic and you would think gosh it would be nice if there was less cars in the winter you know there'd be tumbleweeds blowing down the street on some days people always say well it's still a working town and it is a working town um you know you've still got post office and bottle shops and night and day and pharmacy and people of disabilities and certain age want to come down and pick stuff up and they can only do that with a car so i'm still inclined to say the best solution is a shared space and removes a lot of the parking out of the main street so that people can drive through, but they're encouraged to go and park their cars and, and walk. Make it hard for cars to come through, mm. rather than now they just want to come through licking an ice cream and see what, what it's all about. And you can't blame them, because you come down the hill and you look up the main street and think, well, that's pretty interesting, let's drive down there. So it's been a debate for since the 1960s. It used to be two-way. Buckingham Street. Then it went one way, the other going in the right. other direction. <laughs> then it went one way, going in the present direction. And now, of course, there's a lot of. And I will say it would, it will happen probably um, in the next ten years, maybe. Don't know. Yeah. Well, as you say, it's more that the philosophy is towards shared use and say making it difficult for vehicles so that they have to slow down, that pedestrians are prioritised. Yeah and that everyone can interact um, as they need to. You know, those that have travelled and you coming from the UK, you'll know that small market towns have closed off their centres and you push the cars to the outside, but, you know, pushing the cars to the outside here, we're sort of geographically constrained as to where they can go. Mm. Um, and, you know, the best solution probably would have been 
and it was something we tried to instigate was parking at Millbrook Corner which later got given to council as a reserve contribution by Millbrook and is now a lovely cricket ground but at one stage we were talking about parking and getting little pay and ride uh, vehicles to bring people into town or walk into town. And people may not be aware that the schist curbing um, down Buckingham Street wasn't yeah. always there. You know, no. the fact that you can look at an old yeah. photograph and it's almost identical. You can pick out the pharmacy and some of those buildings. How did that project unfold? Well, this was, um, once again, came from that 94 and then 2003 charrette. And the 2003 charrette or planning workshop came about when I was on my second council term. My first council term was 1998, I think. And I was partly um, inspired to do that, to try and carry out some of these recommendations. And that included, as I said before, Ramshaw Lane upgrade, Buckingham Street upgrade. And as part of the Buckingham Street upgrade, we thought, well, do we want um, just extruded bloody white concrete curbs like every other town does, or do we do a point of difference and put the schist curbs back in? and we got the funding to do the schist curbs. I'd never do it today, it was horrendously mm. expensive. The main catalyst though was the camber of the road. It had just been sealed and sealed and sealed over generations, so it had this sort of bow surface and every camper van that came down wiped out the veranda posts and um, which spouting, do. which they still do. <laughs> and But it was even worse, they would be on such an angle that all the petrol would come out of their tanks and run down the gutter, so in the summer it was somewhat of a fire hazard. So. We got those two big projects done, um, partly when I was on council, and won national awards for landscaping, which was which was great, a great achievement, and then opened up the whole back of the town to new shopping and eating experiences and access to the river. So bringing it back to the most recent project, the earthquake strengthening of the museum, yeah. Yeah. that must have been quite a daunting ask when you first got told that that was something that was needed to yeah. be done. Yeah. Um, I sort of got ahead of the game by knowing after um, the earthquakes in Christchurch that government was going to be requiring people with unreinforced buildings to to do some strengthening. It happened after the Anangahua earthquake, it happened after Napier, it happened after, happens after every big New Zealand earthquake. So um, I got the engineers in to assess what it what its requirements were, I started to get prices. So I got I got prices and was all ready to go, but when the prices came in at three million for the work and five hundred thousand for new displays, we thought, well, how are we ever going to raise this sort of money? We haven't got the ability to raise that sort of money. Um, will we have to close that part of the the bank down? And of course COVID worked in mysterious ways and that there was this money called shovel ready money. I kept hassling them from my desk at home during lockdown. No, we didn't apply. Uh, we didn't comply with the regulations that needed to be a ten thousand dollar project. I said, "Look, we've got all the consents ready to go. Um, building consent, resource consent, conservation plans. I've done that in the interim years from the um, Christchurch earthquake through to COVID lockdown. And then one day, um, this group." Provincial Development Unit, which was a sort of another part of the shovel-ready uh, money, rang up and said, "Get your um, get your comms people to be ready to make a, a statement tomorrow." And they rang up and said, "Look, you've got the two million. And I know Jim Bolt from Council did a lot of lobbying in Wellington for us. And then Council put up the other 
million dollars, and so we had the three million dollars ready to go. Didn't have to go and do the sausage sizzles <laughs> and the, you know, making jam. And then Central Lakes Trust came up with the other. So you know that was lockdown wasn't good for some people, but it was great for me. I made three and a half million for the museum over that time. Because was there a moment there that the museum might not have survived if it hadn't been able to raise the funds? We certainly would have had to close a third of the museum down ultimately mm. on that corner. But you know, everyone said, "Oh, you'll get the money," but the benefit, you know, the um, benefactors didn't come out of the woodwork. A few put a thousand here and a thousand there, but you know, were they going to come to the party? Maybe they would have. I don't know. But um, I didn't have to go cap in hand, so that was amazing. Which legacy projects, or if you can call them those, but which projects would you point to as a legacy project that you feel that you're most proud of and um, the impact you've had on the town? I often walk around the river track and know that uh, Colin Walker from Regional Council and I got that implemented. got flooded out the first year it was built and was just before it got handed over to council to maintain and Regional Council had to reinstate it and they reinstated it slightly better and slightly higher. And I walk around that track and see the amount of people that use that river loop and go, wow, I, I played a part of that. Skate park, which I, was on my watch, uh, the new liner for the swimming pool, the upgrade of Buckingham Street, upgrade of Ramshaw Lane, and then obviously the buying of the post office and, and still running there, the second oldest running post office in the country. I said pick one, David. Oh, sorry. <laughs> pick <laughs> one. Oh, okay. Maybe... Uh, <laughs> Maybe that river track gives me the, the most joy, I think. I was going to say, I'm quite surprised you, you, you picked that as not something in the built environment. Yes. But, um, me as a relative newcomer, you just couldn't imagine the river without the, yeah. the river loop there. It's amazing to think that it, there was nothing there. Yeah, there was a partial track on one side, so we saw the potential. And, you know, uh, there was another guy called John Mowat who just wanted bridges everywhere, and he raised a lot of money to put bridges both across the arrow there but further up so you can get to Mastown without getting your feet wet and he deserves a medal as well. So tell us what's happening at the museum today, you've got some new displays, you've got art exhibitions always uh, rolling, what's what's happening right now? Well it's a pretty bustly little museum, um, you know we've bounced back after Covid like a lot of tourism. At the moment um, we've got something on in the art gallery, we change the exhibitions over there every five or six weeks. That's something I instigated in about 1993. That room was just full of um, Dua Scottish settler portraits that no one went into. So I thought this can do better, let's turn it into an art gallery where at least the locals would come in and see changing exhibitions. So we've had the place full of schools through our education programme today. We've had lots of visitors um, looking at our amazing books and art collection in our gift shop and then you know hundreds of people through our upgraded museum displays which we've made more and more hands-on and you know museum visitors expect to be entertained it's not like quiet uh, reflective places you've got to have a little bit of entertainment so some of our new displays are reflected in in that there's a pinball machine there's um an operation being performed in shadow above the old doctor's bed. There's challenges for the kids. Um, that's the thing that gives, also gives me great joy is our education program that the children of this district know more about the history than their parents and their, mm -hmm. and their grandparents through the museum. And they love coming here. And um, they'll come in after hours, you know. 
they're not all stuck on their devices and no. they want to come down to the museum. And um, I think that all started by me doing this diorama of a man on an outside toilet um, who yeah. yells at you when you open the door and generations of kids and <laughs> yeah. who are now yeah. adults come in because I've been here for 34 years and they're now adults and come in. Have you still got the man on the toilet? Yeah, still saying the same old thing. Yeah, it gets there every time, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So um, we've made the museum fun and that's why it's so popular. I think you mentioned the Aratown Promotion and Business Association yeah. earlier, which we worked together on. Yeah. Um, that's, you know, the the organisation behind the brand, behind yeah. the Aratown logo. Yeah. I believe you were there at the beginning instigating the setting up of that. Yeah. Tell us it about was, that. It was sort of a fledgling voluntary group where you put a hundred bucks up for each business and it had no sort of structure. And like DQ, we realised that we needed to be funded by a rating levy. There was a guy that, run the, that ran a double-decker bus and a wine trail, a guy called Ray Furner, who now is the New Zealand manager of Rinai, so he sort of segued into a different career path. A guy called Norman Smith, who um, was a former accountant that ran Viking Motels and myself. I'm not sure if Bruce Gibbs was around in those days. I think he probably was. Council said, if you door knock all the businesses and get 75% of them to agree to a rating differential levy like we've got in Queenstown, we'll do it. And that's what we did. So we, through that exercise of door knocking, and everyone was saying, sure, you know, it had just never been done before. Instead of a, this optional $100 a year, everyone had to pay money and we got a funding base and we were able to move from there. And as more businesses came into town, we got more money and then we started to employ someone and we got more and more professional to the state we are now, which is a great institution with um, the next generation of brains who are far more switched on and, and um, than we ever were in our fledgling sort of efforts at, at promotion. Although we did, you know, go to the trends conferences and we did ensure bus tours still came to town and then, you know, a lot of our marketing, marketing initiatives were sort of innovative and we did have very clever people but there was probably quite a bit of infighting in those days which whilst there's still some it, everyone's much more collegial I think. So what's the APB up to today what are the topics that are keeping it going? Uh, the Business Association I think um, not only, only are they just promotional but they have also jumped onto the the idea that you've got to protect the town because the town is the product uh, rather than just saying, let's bring more and more people. Um, so that's one thing that's probably changed. It's just not bums on seats and pure promotion. It's how we, and, and you think about what we're doing, you know, the bike parks, shared space, the idea that you've got to protect the town because the town is the product, uh, rather than just saying, let's bring more and more people. Um, so that's one thing that's probably changed. It's just not bums on seats and pure promotion it's how we and, and you think about what we're doing you know the bike parks shared space um the gateway to the mahu whenua land river margins they're not exactly promotional projects but they're projects that ensures that the product that we have Arrowtown itself is um still a desirable place to come and that's a very fragile environment as we all know you know the world's littered with resort towns that get it wrong or overdevelop or squeeze people out because no one can afford to live and we're sort of at that point at the moment uh, in terms of affordable housing. 
but our advantage is that we've got an amazing strong community here and I think that goes a long way and they're all interested in the town and that goes a long way to making sure you know everyone's pretty vocal um, in a good way that ensures that the town's survival is, is going to be guaranteed. We do have to watch about you know this affordable housing and, and how that might impact on school roles and how families are leaving the district and whether it becomes the prerogative of the rich and, and too much like Aspen and knowing everyone has to live down the valley and um, you know I do see signs of that all the time but I've been saying that for 30 mm. years and the same if you look at the mountain scene 30 years ago it'll be affordable housing crisis. You know, well, Town becoming the prerogative of I'd the I'd rather buy one 30 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, it's, it's not an easy solution either. I don't know how you solve it because land values are so high. It can only come through central government or local government. Yeah, I was just going back to the APBA. Nikki Bust, who's the ma manager of the APBA, she's, she describes it as the equivalent of DQ, Destination Queenstown, and the Chamber of Commerce, because as you're saying, it's not just about pure promotion, yeah. it's that support of business, and yeah. therefore indirectly support of uh, our families and people yeah. that live in the town and, and run successful businesses. Yeah. And that is another big change since you know I came, the number of businesses that are moving into town, you know, up above Arrow Lane, and they see the future of the town as a place they want to be. They they like having their clients here, they like the recreation on the doorstep, go for a walk, feed into the cafes, which is critical during the winter and the quieter season that we've now got all these workers. You know, up to 400 workers living, uh, sorry, working in Arrowtown on any given day, probably even more now. So. You know, that's been a big change from Sleepy Arrow Lane. It's just full mm. of full of office workers now. And what's happening down at the dishery um, beside the Chinese settlement's a big change and more getting constructed at the moment. Um, you know, there's a real push for office space here, which, you know, isn't tourist related at all. So you're right, there's that Chamber of Commerce, which isn't just pure promotion of, of tourists. And another uh, committee or board that you're involved with is APAG, the Arrowtown yeah. Planning and yeah. Advisory Group. Yeah. Yeah. Tell us what role that plays. Um, that was a spin-off after 1989 when um, Arrowtown was amalgamated, Arrowtown Council. A petition went to local government and they rejected uh, the argument that Arrowtown shouldn't be amalgamated but agreed to allow a planning committee to stay for two terms. That planning committee had the power to make decisions but then it was divested of its power and in replacement was uh, basically an urban design panel that was able to look at applications in the heritage zones and make comment that weren't binding but over time council planners have generally always sought the advice of, of this group that is usually made up with a couple of architects, landscape art, architect, historians and then lay people, people that want to be on a committee to vet these applications and it's been a really successful process sometimes we get niggles that you know you shouldn't be able to tell us what we do on our own property but you buy into Arrowtown with this idea especially in the heritage zones that these are zones worth protecting and, and that you your design should be sympathetic to that environment. So how do you define the heritage zones where are they? Uh, they go up to about Stafford and Kent Street down to Nairn Street and out to Mance Road, the War Memorial. So mostly all the places that you'll see a sprinkling of original cottages. And the values behind that area was that they were 
green leafy sections, street trees, small form buildings with gardens. And then, of course, the argument now is about intensification if we want to fit more people in. And intensification is now happening in you know, Adamson Drive in terms of the mixed density zoning. And that'll have to be looked at again, I suspect, um, in terms of affordable housing. It's, it's a great result. You know, one of the other things I was involved with was, was the pushing of the, the Taylor Banks um, development. And, you know, we're, we've got to identify perhaps a few more of those. So the, uh, there are some Aratown planning guidelines, aren't there? There's actually a document. Yeah. Is it just about being sympathetic in inverted commas or are there specific rules and Yeah, it's quite prescriptive, but, you know, the group recognises the change in, in materials and, um, you know, it was so prescriptive that it always said wooden joinery in the first incarnation of the plan, but now, you know, obviously aluminium joinery, except on original heritage buildings. But it has a palette that we call the um, Aratown vernacular, so that's your schist, your corrugated iron, painted surfaces, um, Corten steel's getting used now a bit, as we can see from that new development opposite the fire station. Um, some people say, you know, it's a bit twee, other people say, well, you know, that's what makes the town have a special character, and, and I always say, well, the proof is in the pudding. People can't get enough of it. They flock to town. And um, what do they flock for? The people, of course. Yeah. The tap. <laughs> um, no, just the amenity that's been created by that small-scale development. The main Buckingham Street could have been seven storeys on either side or five storeys on either side. What would it have looked like? You know, would it have the same character? Well, there are plenty of examples of towns that have gone down that route. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah. Um, I've said before, it's for fortuitous that the town almost died Yes. In that it was left yes. untouched yes. and then became yes. a holiday destination yeah. that meant people didn't tinker too much. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. And that's how we were able to create it by um, getting in on the ground in the 1970s and, and when those first tour buses arrived and saying, well, do we want to just be swamped or can we control this a, a little bit better? So where do you think things are going from here? We've talked about the last 33 years. What do you think that the, the challenges and the changes well, that are to come? Yeah, I've touched on some of those. Um, so that's affordability. The changing face of the economy. So um, moving away from one egg, you know, eggs all in one basket with tourism and into techie type businesses. The array of businesses in, in Aritam, for instance, you know, there's lots of environmental businesses there's all this hot desking, there's creative graphic artists, there's artisans, there's all sorts of people that aren't tourist related. So that has to happen. Um, golf tourism is a big thing that has happened in the last 15 years um, that brings huge money into town. The whole Millbrook on our boundary has been pretty amazing. You know, people were dubious, but they've been a great neighbour, employer and they feed people into town. Um, sure, they're of um, high, they're what we would call high value tourists. Um, we have to still be, it's, it gets harder and harder. We've still got our camping ground, but we still have to be um, available for, for New Zealand tourists. Um, and I think we still are. It doesn't have to cost money to come and stay at the camping ground, not much money. And still do all those things that we did as kids to go down to the river. It doesn't cost you anything go down gold panning for a few bucks, 
walk up to most town. We're so lucky to have the Mahu Whenua land behind us. You know, 52,000 hectares of our own virtual national park behind us and all that that's going to provide over the next 20 years with walking trails. There'll be a great trail track through there and, um, you know, we'll be, we'll be the um, start and finish of it. And I think you've said in the past that previously Aratown sort of had its back to the river yes. and now we're yeah. starting to turn to face the river. Definitely, definitely. You know, that was just crazy that, but then that was, you know, how industrial towns were. They weren't interested in the aesthetics or, well, they weren't interested in facing the sun. They were just interested in building in the best and easiest possible way. And Aratown, the river was, was a, um, was a threat. You had cliffs at the back mm. of town. You know, the river's filled up about 10 to 12 metres of gravel since the gold rush days. So it's quite a different sort of river down there. The other regret is, you know, regional council pushing that river way over behind stock banks. And so you just don't get that full impact when I first came to town of the river. Just, you could hear it roaring on heavy rain days just behind the town and everyone could go down and have a look. And, but they kept saying, oh, it's costing too much to put rocks to stop it. But in all my time here, I've only ever seen it come over where the skate park is once in the 99 flood. So, you know, whether they had to push it over there, I don't know. I don't like the result. I don't think anyone does. And you've, we've talked together about, you know, the dust bowl of weeds down there that isn't that attractive. And with that turning to face the river, what are some of the considerations and challenges you think that's going to bring for the town? Um, I guess... One is the, the whole water catchment in the river and how it interrelates with the town. The other is the issue of wilding trees and the, remo and the removal of the, the willows. The willows were put in there to armour the town probably 80, 100 years ago. Uh, those big crack willows that are um, coming in many places to the end of their natural life, especially with climate change and strong winds that we get. So they would have they deliberately planted, they haven't yeah. seeded... Um, uh, those crack willows were planted to, as a sort of catchment board type arrangement. Um, but then, you know, they do sprout and, and seed. So there's the debate about the removal of them, the removal of the Douglas firs and pines, which has been a great initiative, especially on what we call the Tobin's face. When I was a kid, uh, obviously that was all grazed, so you didn't have the sycamores and the rowans that have taken over the the Tobin's face and all the larches. Um, then you can see photographs <coughs> in the museum, of course, of the ice ring on Wilcox Green, is it? Yeah. Um, and you can see it's a completely bare face. Yeah. We used to go possuming up there. So there was grey, what you would call grey shrubland. So if there's going to be replanting, you know, what do you do? I see some of the native planting that's going on and, and I realise this is a a motive debate at the moment, you know, to the extent where natives good, um, deciduous, introduced exotics are bad, and I don't subscribe to that. I, I recognise the economic driver of the colour trees, and people would be horrified. Most people that visit during autumn would be horrified if you said we're going to cut all them out. I realise the nature of monoculture and, and bird life, but you know, walking up Tobins every day, there's I get swept by falcons and tuis and there's certainly plenty of bird life because you know those trees aren't a monoculture so I'm quite happy with the um, with the sycamores and the rowans the larches well yeah I don't see huge face seedling seeding off of the other faces from the, the larches so I'm not sure about 
the removal of the larches. And then the cracked willow um, down the river and the replacement of them with just tussocks and toy toys and what does that provide for amenity down the river, you know. I've just, I loved as a kid going down to the river and sitting under the, the willow trees for shade and that's part of the amenity. Hard to shelter under a toy toy or a flax, but I'm in awe of what they've done up Sawpit Gully and all the planting there. I think that's where the planting is good, where the, there would have been native vegetation originally. But to try and introduce Fiordland into the banks of the Arrow River, I'm not so sure about that. Maybe I'm just out of touch and it's a generational debate, which it seems to be to some degree. But I just hate all those colour trees to go and, and just be turned into a, into a native sanctuary because I don't think that's what it ever was. Yeah, well, I think we're moving to a point where we need to have a wider discussion on all of the things that we've touched on, sort of going back to that initial meeting you talked about in, was it 1994, mm. uh, and setting out a master plan of all of these things of our natural environment, both sort of natural and managed, yeah. of our infrastructure, yeah. um, and sort of think ahead to go, well, if Aratown was as it was when you discovered it 33 years ago, or as you started working at the museum, and all the interventions you've had the opportunity to make and participate in, what are those next interventions going to be to ensure that we've got something that we can all yeah, be proud of? Exactly. And how does everything interweave, knit together, yeah. and the sort of this no, word legibility? Fair, fair comment. I mean, I call it the last settler because I, I mean, you know, I still love it passionately, and these people will whinge and say, "Oh, it was way better 20 years ago that you allowed it to be yeah. stuffed." Whereas everyone else arriving on the coaches go, "Oh, this is amazing." And they find it today amazing um, because they're seeing it as, as it is today. So you can't sort of make your judgment based on what it was like 20 years ago. The secret is to protect those things that are valued through our planning workshops. And the latest one, of course, Shaping Our Future, was only just recently done again last year or finished last year. And they kept reinforcing all the things that had been reinforced in 1994. Mm. The good thing about the 1994 workshop is that it came out with some really good drawn plans. And those were implemented for Buckingham Street. Those were implemented for Ramshaw Lane. Um, there's drawings of what the river margin should look like, you know. But we keep reinventing that. So I think you do. You're right. We need some master plans. And um, the problem has been to get that sort of next generation. Certainly, I'm heartened by people like you and others. Um, that next generation to be engaged and involved. Um, um, to get good representation. You're but right. you know, it's the same situation, yeah. It's always the same faces that pop up in, in discussions on how the town should go. Well, as I said earlier, <coughs> it's hard to imagine you know, the river without the river track. You just assume yes. that things yeah. have always been yeah. as they are. And um, as you say, last settler, it's a human instinct to resist change. And I think if we can all get involved, participate in discussion, yeah. and hope that we can evolve in a way that's positive for everybody and is in the longer term interest of the town. Yeah. Well, David, that seems like a good place to draw it to an end. I really appreciate you taking this time to talk to us on our inaugural episode. And um, I'm sure I'll have opportunity. There's plenty, plenty of ground that we haven't covered um, and opportunities to talk to you again in the future. Pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Nick. <laughs>